been going through like a, a big picture overview of the, the story of the Bible over a period of seven weeks we'll be covering it, so we're up to part four. Our normal habit is to preach through books of the Bible, uh, probably after Easter, Easter's quite early this year, I think it's 1st of April or roughly around there, I'm sure people will make comments about Easter and April Fools, I'm sure atheists will get on board and love that one. Um, but after that we'll be beginning a series through the book of Acts, but what we've decided to do is we're not actually going to go the entirety through the book of Acts this year, but because we're trying to have a real emphasis of bringing the gospel to the broad spectrum of people, from everyone far from God to everyone who are mature in relationship with Jesus, to bring them closer to Jesus, we think Acts is a really good model and good reminder and encouragement to us. So for the next three years, we're going, or basically we're going to break up the book of Acts into three sections and we're going to begin this year and the next two years, uh, dealing with one of those three sections through the book of Acts. So that's uh, the next time we'll start working through a book of the Bible. But today we'll continue with our um, overview of the Bible as we look at uh, what the prophets have got to say regarding God and his redemption plan and his kingdom. Something I shared with uh, the group at the prayer meeting we had this morning was just the first verse of Psalm 122, where it says, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. And I hope that when you've come this morning, it's not because you think, I'm a Christian, it's what we do Sunday mornings. Some of you might think it's just been a really busy week, it's just something else to fit in. I pray that in our time together, that it will be a joy to say, I have come to the house of the Lord. I've been gathered by other people who love Jesus, that we've learned about him, about our wonderful Saviour who has given our life for him, and that we've built up and encouraged in our time together. So before we... Uh, Look into God's word. Uh, Let's um, commit our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's so difficult to comprehend the love that you have for us, the love that you have for a people who by nature have wandered so far from you. One of the joys that we have seen as we've looked through your plan of redemption from start to finish the Bible, you have a plan centered on Jesus Christ to redeem a people for yourself. Lord, for those who have been walking with you for a large number of years, it's easy to become familiar with the price that Jesus paid to secure our salvation and all of the wonderful blessings that have come our way as a result. But Lord, I pray that you would Grant us to see the full value of who you are and what you've done. The Lord, that we might be so pierced to the heart that we might know the joy of our salvation to which you have called us to. Our Lord, fill our hearts with a thankfulness as we see who you are and your plan for this world. Build us up, encourage us that we might um, be so passionate about you, not only in our own personal, private lives, that it might be seen that we would take the kingdom wherever we go. And see to us through your word, speak through me by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So up to part four of seven of our overview of the Bible. And when we're talking about doing an overview of the Bible, we're not just doing a timeline of just, here's the chronology of how events happen from start to finish. Our goal is to see how the Bible, even though it's 66 books by about 40 authors over a period of 1,500 to 2,000 years, is indeed one unified, cohesive story that centres on Jesus Christ and his redemption. As we've mentioned many times, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, God had a plan for all eternity to unite all things 
in Christ. So the Bible isn't just unrelated events. It is God's work in the world, and particularly God's working in people in this world to unite them under Christ. We speak of this idea of looking at a big picture of the Bible like the front box of a jigsaw puzzle that not only shows you how each of the parts fit together, but shows you how they all contribute to one cohesive picture. Our goal as we look through this is understand how all of the scriptures point together, how they centre on Jesus Christ, not just the New Testament, but how the Old Testament points us forward to Jesus, how the New Testament shows how Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament and how he presents that future and perfected hope. Last week we were looking at the monarchy and the, the, the dividing of the kingdom in the Old Testament. Today we're going to look at what do the Old Testament prophets reveal even further of God's kingdom plans. When talking about kingdoms, we've used three terms of identifying what makes a kingdom. Or four if you include the king, which is obvious, which is God. By nature, the creator is the, is the one who is the ruler of all things. But to have a kingdom, you need a people, a place, a means by which you rule. And if God is the perfect king, being under his rule is the perfect place of blessing, the place where we were designed to be. So our structure as we're going through today... Every week we go at the story so far, so if you've missed some weeks or you've missed all the weeks, um, we'll give you a very quick um, overview of where we've come so far. But because we're focusing on the prophet's message this morning, we're going to look at their warnings, their judgments, but also their message of peace and hope. So let's begin with the story so far. We began at the beginning of the Bible, good place to start, where God who created all things makes him by nature the ruler and owner of every single thing which exists. There is no higher authority. And right there in Genesis chapter 1, we see the pattern of what this kingdom plan of God looks like. God has a people, which is Adam and Eve, in a place, which is the Garden of Eden. And while they're underneath his rule, they had perfect relationships. As a matter of fact, they had perfect everything. Perfect relationships with God, perfect relationships with each other, and even perfect relationships with the creation in which they lived. And all of that continued in that way as long as they recognised that God was their king and they lived under his rule, that was where all the blessings were. It's what we were created for. The time it turned sour is when they decided, God isn't the ultimate ruler in my life. He's not the ultimate authority. They decided, I know better. I'm going to rule my own life. I'm going to be the king. I'm going to call my own shots. And when they stepped out of his rule... They stepped out to the place of blessing. And so no longer do we have God's people as being Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve no longer are God's people. No longer are they in God's place as a result of their rebellion against the king. They are placed outside of the garden. And because being underneath God's rule was the place of blessing, when they stepped outside of God's rule, they were punished. And they experienced curses and consequences. But one thing we've seen as we go through this series, there are times where human rebellion and sin looks like God's kingdom plans are really plummeting. But regardless of even the lowest moments in human existence in our response to God, God continues to reveal his plans. His plans are no way hindered by human rebellion or human sinfulness. And even after the fall, 
in the garden, we have in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel, that one would come who would crush the serpent, a descendant of the woman, who would reverse the effects of evil within this world. Very first promise pointing us to Jesus Christ. We went through the highs and lows in Genesis 5 of God wishing he'd never created humanity as he saw the extent of sinfulness as it spread so far. Yet we see again his grace and his promises to Noah. It looks like it's all after another good start. Again, it plummets again. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. People get to a point where they lift themselves up so high. Look, we can do whatever we want. We're making a grand name for ourselves. And God being a good righteous king judges that rebellion scatters the people confuses their languages but again at the deep depths of human sin and failure to respond rightly to our king god's plan's not finished the following chapter of genesis 12 we see god's promises to abraham his plans aren't going anywhere he had a plan even before the foundation of the world to unite all things in christ it's not going to be undone And so we see the promised kingdom and his promises to Abraham that he would have a people who are Abraham's offspring who would be in the place, the promised land of Canaan and under his rule would come blessing to not only to the nation of Israel but to all nations. We look at Galatians 3.16 how Paul tells us the interpretation of those events that those promises were not just to Abraham and his offspring plural but to singular The ultimate fulfilment of those promises are to Christ himself. Then we looked at the kingdom prepared as God calls out a people for himself. We see in the Exodus how God brings a people who are underneath the rule of an Egyptian pharaoh and God brings them out says, I will deliver you out under his rule to serve me, to be his people. And God's people are the Israelites, The temporary place is the wilderness and the tabernacle. And God gives his law as a means by which he rules his people and by obedience to which is the place of blessing for his people. You read through the end of the law, get to Genesis, not Genesis, Deuteronomy 28, and you see there are abundant blessings for obedience to the law and curses, which we're going to see some of the consequences this morning, for disobedience. But last week... We looked at the partial kingdom, the coming of the monarchy, in particular the people whom God had entrusted with the role of being his representatives to rule according to God's standards over the people. We look first at the judges and their role at mediating God's law and representing God's law and his values amongst the people. Then also the monarchy, as it was told back in Deuteronomy 17, when they entered the land they would ask for a king, But God says, I don't want a king that's like all the other nations, a king who is of my choosing. And their role was supposed to be a king would write a copy of himself for the law that he would rule not according to his own authority but according to the authority and the values of the God who is the ultimate king and the ultimate authority. So in the partial kingdom we had the Israelites as God's people in the promised land of Canaan God's rule being expressed by the law, the judges and the kings and the blessing comes through obedience through the things which God has provided. Back in Genesis 49, we saw that there was a promise that rulers would come from Judah, one after the other, until 
the one to whom it belongs, then he would have an everlasting kingdom and would have the obedience of all nations. So there's being a kingdom expectation. As good as things looked under David, the prophet Nathan tells him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this isn't you, but one is coming who will be one of your descendants whom God will give the everlasting kingdom to. Probably the peak of Israel's history was under the early stages of Solomon. There was peace in the land, there was prosperity. He started off good, representing God's rules and God's laws to the people. But we know that soon went downhill as it did for his, for his children. Eventually the kingdom divides in two. You've got Israel in the north who never had a good king. All of them were basically followers of idols. A kingdom in the south, Judah, which maybe still had the lineage of David, had the physical temple there, but the majority of the time, their kings weren't much good either. Josiah being one good example of someone who discovered the book of the law and, and all of a sudden got rid of all of the false religious practices they had in the land. But more often than not, the story of both kingdoms was a story of human rebellion and human sin. But once more again, despite the depths of our sinfulness our rebelliousness, our depravity, we see a picture of God's grace. As today we look through the message God brings to us through the prophets, which has both message of judgment, warnings, and also grace, redemption, and hope. Looking first at the prophets' warnings. Now the Old Testament prophets, they wrote at various times in history. Some wrote before either Israel or Judah was taken into captivity. Some of them wrote during the captivity some of them wrote to those who had returned from the exile and who'd come back from Babylon. Those who are writing to the north, you've got Amos and Hosea, they warn the people, return to the Lord or this is what's going to happen. We see in Hosea chapter 11 these words, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not rise up to them at all. Hosea had made it pretty clear to the people. He'd even invoked the image of, of Egypt. You'd think just even just any rough connection to Egypt, people would remember what that was like. It's like, let us return to the Lord. We don't want to go back to that. But they don't. There's something sinister about sin, isn't it? There's something within our sinful state that says, God's not really going to do that, is he? There's something within our sinful state that we think that we're the ultimate authority and nothing can stand in the way of my ultimate authority. They hear the words of God and they think it's like an empty threat. They think it's like a a child whose parent says to them, if you don't eat your veggies, I'm going to take you down to the ABC studios and Jimmy Giggle's going to smack your bottom in front of all the other kids on ABC Kids. Now, a three-year-old knows your parent, your mum and dads can't pull that one off. They're smart enough to realise you don't have the power or authority to do that. And there's a wise parenting tip. I've never seen any parenting training material that doesn't say, never threaten a consequence that you either can't do or that you won't do. That's not only good parenting advice, but if we are created in the image of God, and we are supposed to be image bearers of God, 
We want to give people the impression that our God, whom we are image bearers of, what he says he's going to do, he does. We don't want to give our children the impression that, that people who say things don't follow through on them. They're not to be worried about. When God warns of things, they, they need to be taken seriously. When God says these are the consequences, they're going to be the consequences. We don't want to raise up a generation who think the warnings and the judgments of God are something that, nah, you won't do that. These things are serious. But to come back to the children analogy, when they end up in exile, the people complain. You know how you do that to your kids? You tell them a number of times, if you do this, this is going to happen. If you do this, this is going to happen. Then it happens. Oh, you never told me. This isn't fair. Yet the prophets make it very clear to them why they are where they are. And you think that when the southern kingdom, Judah, sees this happen in 722 BC to the northern kingdom, they've learned the lesson. Our God is serious about him being followed, about his rule, his kingdom. And so when the prophets to the south, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah are writing, not only do they warn the people, but they use what happened to the north an example. Saying, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? Don't think that you're going to have different consequences. Don't think you're the favourite kid who gets away with everything. The kingdom model is simple. God is the ruler of all things and he's the good and loving ruler of all things. But he's worthy of all honour and praise. He's worthy to be obeyed, not only because it's what he's worthy of, but it's what's best for us. It's what we're created for. It's the place of blessing for us. But just like it was for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, if you step outside of his rule, you also step outside of the, the means by which God has given us for our blessing and for our good into disobedience and punishment and judgment. So it's no surprise the prophet's message has a lot to say about judgment. So to look at judgment now, Daniel and Ezekiel were a couple of the prophets who actually wrote two exiles in Babylon. Uh, Isaiah also, particularly chapters 40 to 66, address uh, that period in Israel's history as well. But the first sentence of Daniel is pretty clear why they're there. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. Speaking through Daniel, he doesn't want the exiles to think for a moment that they're in this place because things haven't worked out well, or because the Babylonians were so mighty and powerful and well done to them for a military victory. The Lord God has given them. This is God's work. This is, this is the result of their rebellion against their king. shouldn't come as a surprise to them. The very covenant which God has given them, the means by which he was to rule, rule over his people. In Deuteronomy 28, there's a massive list of curses for disobedience, but just to give you one small sample of it, verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. 
So this is just one of the many things that says, if you turn against me, this is what will happen. They can't say, oh, you never told us. If you were to take the time to read Deuteronomy 28, and you'll notice two things. You'll, one thing you'll notice there is both blessings for obedience and curses. You'll know there's actually less time spent on the blessings, as rich and abundant as they are. They're actually quite extensive, the section that is written on the curses for disobedience. I can't imagine that section makes for great devotional reading. But it is quite serious. And it wants to be made clear, God takes rebellion seriously. And the prophets want the people to know, where you are is because God takes rebellion seriously. You're there because of your, your disobedience. Now, when you hear the word prophet, don't always think prophets foretell everything future. The majority of the content is dealing with judgment for things that have happened in the past, judgment for things that are presently happening to them. But interspersed amongst that, we see promises of hope and redemption for the future as well. At every stage we've gone through, we've seen massive pitfalls and failures, and God reveals more. Sure, in the covenant that God has given the people at Mount Sinai, there were conditions. You obey, blessing. Disobey, curse. Kicked out of the land, the place where God has planted you to bless you. But he's also made significant promises to Abraham where no conditions were attached. That I will form you into a great nation. That I will bring you to be a blessing to yourself and to all nations. And so the message of the prophet includes a message of hope of these things that we're speaking about in kingdom. Hope for a, new, for a people, for a place, and for a means of rule and blessing. So let's look at their message of grace, hope, and redemption. There's so much of it, particularly in the message to those who are in exile and also to those who return in the writings of the prophets. The main thing you need to remind them, when everything's going sour around them, here they are in the land that's not their own. They're not in God's place. They've got no temple. The temple was eventually destroyed. They must start to wonder. All of these key elements that we've been looking through is identifying God's kingdom. They all look like they're in ruins, don't they? No signs of them tangibly being God's people. They're not inside the place in which God had promised doesn't exactly look like a place of blessing where they are. They're actually actively under God's judgment for their rebellion. But through the message of the prophets, part of which we've had read this morning, there's opportunity to be restored under God's rule to peace and blessing again. Verses 7 to 10 of Isaiah 54, which we had read at the beginning. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I'll have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah could no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion among you doesn't mean to say there's no consequences for sin. The prophets speak regularly of a, of a faithful remnant amongst the people of Israel. But not only has God not forgotten his covenant, through the words of the prophet Jeremiah, he speaks of a new and better covenant. Saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the one I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and to his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So this new and greater covenant of which the prophet speaks of, speaks of not like the old one which had provisions for sacrificial systems that had to be done over and over again that covered sin, but speaking about one that would deal comprehensively with sin. To forgive, not just to cover. To remember them no more. Now there's a very good glimpse here that the chance to be under God's rule and blessing is here to be restored. We've got language that I will be your God, you'll be my people. That God has a people that he will call to himself. There's even hints that this outworking will stretch further out to the nations. Saying no longer will you need to tell your neighbour, know the Lord. For all shall know. The prophet Isaiah extends and clarifies the reach of this kingdom to, to the nations as well. In Isaiah 49 verses 5 to 6, speaking of his servant. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should raise up my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we've got promises of a new covenant, promises of a new people extending to all nations. But also you might call them to think back to the last time they were slaves in a foreign land. Make them think back at a time when, when Israel was in Egypt. And part of the means by which God delivered them, we see that last final plague, the Passover lamb, where a sacrificial lamb died to take place as a substitute, even on behalf of sinful Israel. Now Isaiah picks up on that imagery to speak of a greater and more perfect Passover lamb. In Isaiah 53, 6, you know that 52 and chapter 3, 53 go into more detail, saying, We all like sheep have gone astray, we've each turned everyone to his own way, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That we know is Jesus, is the one who bore our sins. That God may remember them no more. So there is a new Passover. There is a new Exodus. The New Testament writers speak of Jesus' death and resurrection as a new Exodus. So people had so many things they'd be looking forward to. Such anticipation, so many wonderful things promised. Even at the depth of a very dark time in their history. Now when the Persian king Cyrus commands the exiles they can return back, you think, now. Surely this must get the ball rolling. We'll go back, we'll rebuild the temple, we'll get another king and everything will go back. This is going to be the fulfilment of everything God has promised us. But it didn't work out quite that good, did it? Not everyone did return. In fact, there were so many who were so comfortable not being God's people not living under his rule and blessing, that they didn't want to go back. But for those who did go back, they rebuilt the city walls. They rebuilt the temple. 
And for many, it was a great celebration to see the temple again, thinking God is starting to do something big in our midst. But it wasn't rejoicing for everyone. Ezra records as they sang responsively, praising, giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of their fathers' houses, old men who'd seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So for those who had seen the the previous temple, they actually wept. It was just a a shade of the former glory of the temple that had been beforehand. But not only have they got a temple, but in Ezekiel 10, speaks about the time because of Israel's rebellion, the glory, the presence of God had left the temple. And nowhere in the Old Testament does it refer to a time during during their history when the Lord's Lord's presence had returned to the temple. But later in Ezekiel 40 to 48, there is a picture of a new and perfected temple, one that certainly can't describe the temple that they had standing at that time. Looking forward to a greater fulfilment. But as we come to the final book of the book of the Old Testament, book of Malachi, which we looked at, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but sometime in my time here, there were some pretty big hints that big things were coming. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I'll send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord you seek, he's coming. He's coming to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, the covenant they've heard about, Jeremiah, this new covenant where sins would be forgotten. They'll be dealt with once for all. He is coming. But despite the negative context that the prophets wrote within, nations in captivity being judged for their sins, the prophets reveal huge things for the great hope for the people and for all nations. In particular, there's a repeated theme of new things. Speaking of a new king, the one promised back in Genesis 49, 2 Samuel 7, and also Isaiah 9, 6, the one the child is born, the government will be on his shoulders. A new people of God made up from all nations, as we see in Isaiah 49. A new place. Both the temple, we see, is described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, but also a new heavens, new earth, Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 65. A new means by which God will rule with a new covenant where he will write the law on their hearts and that will be a wonderful blessing to all people. What we see in effect is a new form of God's plan of kingdom where God would have a people for himself, a new Israel of all, all nations, a new place, temple and the new creation, a new rule and blessing through the new covenant and the coming of a new king. Anyone would be presumed to think that we're heading towards a climax in God's plan of redemption. And we know because of where we stand in history, they were. They didn't know how long it was going to take. They were probably frustrated with the amount of time it did take until God's King, Jesus Christ, entered into this world. We're a wonderful place in history where we can look back and say, I know what's going to happen. 
I know that God has a plan to unite all things in Christ. And next week we'll look at the present kingdom. As the King, Jesus Christ, has come. Now, as Christians, we know that Jesus is a big deal to the New Testament. We know Jesus is a big deal to Christianity. But when we look at the King who has come next week, we'll see that Jesus is a big deal to the Old Testament. He is front and centre. All of the focus is actually on him. All of the activities, the events, all of the types, all of the signs are pointing forward to Jesus. My goal is that we will see and cherish Jesus on every page of the Bible from start to finish. See him as the central hope of God's plan, a unified story from beginning to end. But I also want us to encourage us about this time during the period in which the prophets wrote. They wrote during a time when people had no tangible sign that they were God's people. They had no tangible sign that they were in God's place and experiencing his blessings. Yet in the middle of that, despite what they were experiencing, God's promises and God's plan still stands. Now, I don't know how things are going in your lives at this point in time. They might be a time where you think, man, everything's going great for me. I can see God's wonderful blessing in my life. I couldn't be more overjoyed. But others of you might be at a time where it really feels like, I don't see God. I don't see his goodness towards me. And I want to remind you to keep looking back in history how God has dealt with his people. God has dealt with people in very low places that were not outside of his plan, nor were they outside of his comfort for his people. Remember the words of Isaiah in chapter 40? Comfort, speak comfort to my people. He's writing to a people who were in the middle of this punishment and judgment. There are words of comfort. God has words of comfort to you and I, whether we're in a time of great blessing or a time when it just doesn't feel right. But I need us to know that God's promises and God's plans still stand despite how we may or may not feel on any given day. So I pray that it be encouraged to you. If you find it's a time when just things don't look like life circumstances are going the way you wish they were, God's promises still stand. You can trust them. His blessing is still there. See the little blessings and the little things. Pray that God might help you see his purpose in, in whatever you're in. But in all things, to be able to give him thanks and acknowledge that he's working a good plan out, as he always has done and faithfully always will do. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that, uh, that you have given us a detailed account of your, your dealings with mankind in this world. Lord, so often we think that we're the only one who might be going through something and only to see that Humanity's gone through a regular cycle of um, turning against you, experiencing hardship and oppression, but also seeing your wonderful promises, your wonderful goodness and your steadfast love that is unchanging. Lord, we thank you that we live at a time in history where we don't just need to look forward wondering how it is that you'll deal with our sin, but we know how you have. When we don't need to know who will be the king that you have provided, we know the one who is your king. And Lord, that we might learn from the lessons of old, that we might be an obedient people, knowing that obedience to to your king is the, the wonderful place to be. It's what we're designed for. It is the place of greatest and richest blessings. Even though sometimes our heart may feel like 
and the things that we desire are more enjoyable. Lord, we know you are good. We know all you give to us is for our good. And we pray we might receive it with thanksgiving. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.